1: Get IPVanish now for 70% off a yearly plan with this exclusive offer at IPVanish.com audio.
2: It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast here on this Sunday, December the 4th, 2016. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. Send me a tweet at MikeSilvaMedia. Check out the show at Metsmorizedonline.com, SoundCloud, iTunes, and pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Hope everybody's doing well. And, hey, we're jumping two feet in into the winter meetings here on the Talking Mets Podcast. Great guests joining us today. Maury Brown uh, of Forbes and uh, the Biz of Baseball, formerly the site, the Biz of Baseball, uh, will be joining me as we go through the new CBA and some of the implications it has on the game both on the field, off the field, and what have you. And then joining me for MetsMarinesOnline.com, Tim Donner. Tim has joined me throughout the season, uh, nationally syndicated radio host, and we're going to go back and forth and kind of preview what we expect at the winter meeting. Should the Mets trade Granderson or Bruce? What can they get for them? Uh, we'll talk a little bit about what the big news is, the Cespedes deal. I mean, they made it easy for us. We thought it was going to be all Cespedes all the time. That's in the back burner after a, uh, a great show last week with Rich So Now we could move on to the Bruce Granderson situation. Can the Mets upgrade the bullpen? Can they get involved with a big-time deal? Is there something up Sandy Alderson's sleeve, maybe a McCutcheon or something along those lines? Will they get into the fray for someone of that ilk? We'll see what Tim thinks and, and of course, how the Mets can round out the roster here. As the winter meeting starts uh, later today into tomorrow through Thursday in National Harbor, Maryland. Just a few things so that you guys who love the podcast uh, can know. Uh, I've I've spoken to Rich Mancuso. He's down at the winter meetings. I'm going to uh, pop in with him, and maybe we'll do a short segment tomorrow, Monday, just to get a feel of what's going on. I'm not sure what news. Heck, by the time you download this, there may be news already. It might be some of it be stale, so hopefully you'll enjoy still listening to it. Uh, you know, And I know our buddy John Delkos of uh, the New York Mets Report is going to the winter meetings. Maybe I'll pop in with him. Still contemplating. Stay tuned. Keep going to MetsMorizedOnline.com regarding whether we'll do some kind of live show after the winter meetings. Got to talk to Joe D.C. if we can get that done. So anyway, uh, let's get to it. I'm going to take a quick break. When we return, Maury Brown from Forbes will be joining me as we discuss the CBA. And then, of course, later on, it'll be Tim Donner and I taking you through what we expect from the Mets during the 2016 winter meetings. I'm your host, Mike Silva. You're listening to the Talking Mets Podcast. You can check it out on MetsMorizedOnline.com, SoundCloud, iTunes, or whatever podcasting service you desire. We'll be right back.
3: Here in Dallas where not long ago Major League Baseball announced that there's been a completed five-year deal
4: with the Major League Baseball Players Association. Great news for everyone involved, players, owners, fans, and it brings with it a lot of changes after hours at the negotiating
3: table over the course of many days here in Dallas. And one of those changes is the luxury tax. It will go up, that's something that players were very intent on, one of the big changes that they wanted to make sure they pushed for. And another one is the qualifying offer, no longer linked to first
4: round picks. So that could be a really big thing for players as they hit free agency the next step for the two sides is going to be to make sure that they're on the same page with everything
3: that they discuss over the course of the last few days. As long as that checks out, then it sets the winter meetings up to take place next week as expected. And at that point, we'll be back to talking about players again.
2: We're back. And uh, joining us, you know him from Forbes, uh, the owner of BizBall LLC, probably you have at some point read the biz of baseball all those years, and uh, you can check him out on Twitter, at BizBall Mori, Maury, Maury Brown. Maury, Mike Silva, it's been a while, man. How are you doing? What's going on?
4: Uh, life's good. It's busy. You know, a uh, new labor deal in baseball, and, um, you know, it's it doesn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon, so I'm a busy man these days.
2: For sure, I mean this is truly a 365 uh, uh, sport, and here's how I would. This is a, a very in-depth CBA. I, I've been taking notes, you know, seeing all the different articles and and little things continue to come out. And you recently did a, a piece on Forbes, which threw a couple of interesting nuggets out there. But here's how I would do the overview and tell me if you agree with this. Similar to you know maybe how the country voted during the recent election, where they decided to vote based on what they felt was the, the needs at home, the Players Association, I guess, maybe sold out some of their Latin American counterparts or maybe some of their amateur counterparts here in the country
4: for the Union constituents. Is that a fair way of putting it? Well, I don't know if they sold them out. I mean, um, as I've heard it, um, it was actually the Latin players were the ones that pushed to not have a draft. And specifically, I mean, one of the players that was mentioned was Robinson Cano. I think the thing that's most interesting out of it was, is that, okay, fine. We're not going to have a draft, but what we got was something that we have never seen in a labor agreement. And that is we have actual hard capping of dollars uh, around international signings. So sure. The, you know, the, the, the players can say that they didn't get a draft, but what the owners got was almost nearly the same. I mean, they've got a, they got a capped system around signing um, international free agents and that, um, tied with some other stuff is is a significant change. Um, I would only say that while maybe, you know, international players are certainly, um, seems like they got thrown under the bus in some capacity. You know, there are, uh, every player that comes out of the Rule 4 draft, the amateur draft, the first year draft, will say that, um, gee, you know, we all had to go through this thing. Why was there always this situation to where players early in their careers were uh seeing such lofty amounts of money where we had to go through the process like everybody else so um i'm sure that there are um some players that will say that um you know while it it, it hurt them in the overall it probably um, made it more equitable on some level
2: and, and i'm looking at various opinions on this and jeff passon of yahoo had a, a, an interesting piece and and talked about maybe um, how this is setting up for a more contentious negotiation, maybe four or five years from now. Um, you know, you talked about some of the with the luxury tax and and the, and the the cap on spending internationally. It's it's much different than what the union in the previous years would have agreed to. That's that's like you said, it's pr- pretty much a cap. Um, do you see this as maybe a warm up from what may be a harder negotiation in a few years?
4: Well, I'm going to write about this um, here pretty soon. I think that you could see this go a number of ways. First of all, I saw Jeff's piece, and um, I could absolutely see this. Um, I think that um, on the face of it, um, I, I would have to say that the owners absolutely got the, the better end of this thing uh, in a in a in um, an industry that's going to see $10 billion or potentially pa- surpass it um, when I get the numbers here in a week or so. Um the, the um, getting caught more cost certainty for the owners and basically getting more restrictions around it was something that I didn't really anticipate. Well, let me, let me rephrase that. I, you always are going to have give and take in anything, but I didn't expect to see it maybe on this level. And I think that there will come a time where the players will sit there and say, gosh, the owners are making so much money um, that um, it, it's not equitable how how we're basically providing that for them and we're not gaining from it quite a different change to me, Mike, than, than what we have seen in the past. And when I say in the past, I'm talking about, um, really right around the time, um, Seelig, um, took over as, uh, moved away from basically the, the, um, the de facto commissioner really into the guy that had was really leading everybody, you know, for a while there, he said he just wasn't really interested in the job and was only filling the void. But, um, I think that there's some significant changes here that when I write about this next week is probably going to really alter some people's views around what the players could do. I'm not going to say that they're going to go there, but there are some advantages that you see in the NBA, that you see in the NFL, and you see in the NHL, but you do not see in baseball. And I think that at some point, you might actually see the players start to look toward that.
2: And with me, Maury Brown. You can check him out on Twitter, at BizBallMurray. And, uh, at Forbes as well.
4: Uh, read
2: some things that maybe some agents are not all that happy with Tony Clark. Um, he didn't really include them or is maybe not communicating with them. I don't know if you saw that and if you agree with that. And I guess maybe give, you, give me an idea how you feel Tony Clark did during this first go around in negotiations.
4: Well, um, you know, I, I certainly wasn't in the room. Um, and, you know, um, Dating prior to Tony Clark, when when Mike Weiner was, you know, God rest his soul was the executive director um, before he died, there was some talk that the players had started to lose some of their muscle after so many years, after Donald Fear left. And I didn't really see that. I saw that there was a, um, a situation by which there were concessions that may have been made in the overall. Um, I have heard some of this, you know, conversation about, you know, Tony Clark's situation. Agents, of course, are going to say this stuff. I mean, you're always going to get um, multiple voices out of this. There are far more um, constituencies on the player side than there are on the owner side, right? There's 30 owners. There's, you know, thousands of players and agents that go along with that on the player side. So I would expect to hear dissenting voices along the way. Um, I I think it'll be interesting to see. You know, I just – I have tried very – very diligently to look at this sans a lot of benefits that came to the players i mean in stuff that just doesn't seem tangible i think to the average fan they picked up 200 million dollars a year in additional benefits i mean they'll get a billion extra dollars in benefits over the year and this is like you know this would be like getting excited about a new dental plan or something but i mean it does have an impact on quality of life it'll affect the not only the active players but those that have retired And so there are some things there that doesn't, you know, doesn't really go whiz bang and jump out at you, um, but that benefit the players. And I looked at that and I said, you know, there's stuff like that. There's going to be more stuff around things like dietitians will be provided by the clubs and that they'll be able to have more food and they'll have better things that will basically not only make them better performing athletes, um, but potentially avoid, you know, getting into trouble around performance enhancing drugs. Although we haven't gone there, there's some significant changes there. So I think that um, in some ways, that's the plus side that you see for the players. You didn't see more money coming to them. You didn't see a situation to where it basically loosened things up uh, on the owner side. I, I, I thought that there was a good chance that you could see us immediately jump to $200 million as part of the, the first year of the luxury tax threshold, and it's not that much. It grows considerably to, I think, uh, $210 million um, toward the end of the agreement but there's a bunch of other constraints around that that are really going to constrain things at the top and I heard Tony Clark say that this was a great thing that wow we've got this system that's going to slow the Dodgers down and you I could not figure out for the life of me how that benefited the players in one one way at, at all you would want to say hey let them spend as much as you want that all comes back to the players and salaries so I could not figure that out. That I really struggled with trying to understand how Clark felt that that was a positive for the players in any way, shape, or form. So on one side, you can say that there's some things that happened for the players. On the other side, I could say that it absolutely um, sounds like they got hurt, and I think that that will ultimately come down to um, some pressure on Clark. You know, we've seen this um, in the NFL um, with D. Smith. There was a lot of talk about he wouldn't survive, but he got renewed. So um I, I will just have to say that it will be interesting to wait and see when his contract comes up for renewal how, how this impacted him.
2: The only thing I could say to that, maybe where he's going, uh, maybe it's a stretch, is that when limiting the Dodgers, however, without the qualifying offer being as much of a chain out there, um, with the disincentive maybe to tank with some of the amateur draft rules, uh, maybe that, you know, in theory creates competitive balance. And maybe those teams that normally would say, I don't need that veteran. We'll sign that guy saying hey, I'm going to have him for 4 years. Maybe he'll still be around when we're good. In the interim, he's a drawing card to a certain degree. Uh, I I know I'm stretching here, but maybe that's what he meant by that comment always going in that direction.
4: Yeah, and I'm sure that, you know, I I've seen seen that said. I mean, you could you could say, well, there's so let's let's look at this in the overall so, some of the topics that you discussed, okay? So, all right. So, we're going to limit the amount of money that goes into um, international signings, and we're going to bump the age from 23 to 25, which will slow down some of the players that are pouring in. That should then go back into more players, maybe out of North America and Puerto Rico. They'll be able to disperse money otherwise that so we can do that. And we should be able to see that. And we've also seen some constraints around um, Oakland, where that was receiving revenue sharing money. Now there wasn't a lot of change there. Um, the amount of money that'll be dispersed is there. Oakland, that singled out. So you go, all right, okay, so how are we making this more equitable across the board and how is this going to allow us to continue to grow? So, um, sure, I think that you would continue to see um, what we've, tra- we've started to see in some capacity, which is better competitive balance in terms of um, the players and economic uh, competitive balance in terms of the owners, then you throw those things together and you can see that growing and you can see some advantages to it. But it, it does beg or does set the the table to say, well, that requires that owners do that, and we've seen not all of them are playing along with this game. Look, when when the pirates are calling around, not fielding calls, but they're instigating calls, and we've seen this reported a number of times around Andrew McCutcheon, That doesn't strike me as a team that is going, wow, we're in a new world here, and we got all this money, and let's go ahead and make these sort of things happen. You know, it, it, therefore every Um, team Mm -hmm. or for every Kansas City Royals that we see, you know, be successful for, you know, a a three or four year stretch, there are teams that are still continuing to hang around the bottom that that you would want to see get more active. I don't see the race getting active. I, you know, it looks like there's some movement around the Seattle Mariners, although the Mariners are far, far and away not a small market team by any stretch of the imagination. They actually have more money than I think people realize. It, I think it'll be interesting, and some of this stuff doesn't play itself out. It's hard to say you know, going into the winter meetings how they are. But if I start to see the Yankees in 2018, and I really feel that we're going to start to see this if we don't see it even before then. You start to see the Yankees get real active again. We're, watch, we're watching the Dodgers re-sign Rich Hill, which you would sit there and say, okay, the Dodgers are bumped up again, and this is something that hasn't been well reported. The Dodgers are up against the debt rule, the c debt rule. that says you can only carry so much debt. All right, so they're in hot water there. And, oh, okay, we've got these new provisions in the, in the agreement that are basically going to squirt and compress and push back on the Dodgers and the Yankees. And here they are signing Rich Hill to an extension. So it does beg the question, does it, is it really going to have that effect? Will it have that? And I don't know if we'll actually get to see that for a while, Mike. might be, you know, it's certainly going to take more than one offseason to make it happen. Two years, maybe. You know, I, I'm I'm waiting to see, and right now I'm going to play a pessimist.
2: You mentioned the uh, the drug program. They've they've increased uh, the amount of testing. Hey, give give the players
4: credit. And I've spoken
2: uh, to a couple of these guys. They're you know at least the ones I've spoken to. They're serious about it. I mean, they don't want this this uh, this cloud over the sport. It, it seems like they're supporting uh, this, the strong drug testing. Uh, I didn't realize. You know, I talked to one player. I didn't realize when you take vacations. You have to let them know you're out of the country, or else you fail if if they try to come in and, uh, uh, and do a test with you. I, I was amazed when I when I learned a little bit about it, and, and this and this agreement continues to move in that direction. Um, you got to feel good that the game is, in at least in theory, as clean as it's ever been, and and it'll continue to be that way.
4: Yeah, I mean, I that was the thing. I think one of the things that jumped out most to me was, you know, we're we're going to have off-season testing. Increase dramatically. We're going to see in-season t- testing um, increase dramatically, um, and we're seeing this both in terms of urine testing for steroids and whatnot, but also blood testing for HGH. So um, we're seeing a, a an increase in the penalties around the use of stimulants. And I think that um, when when you start to get into that, I think that they, you know, I think that the the owners and the players as well, they, I think they saw what happened with the Biogenesis scandal. And I think that, you know, there were a lot of people that sat back and went, you know, wow, we really got this thing under control and they're they're really in good shape. And we shouldn't see a, like a Balco thing that we saw with Bonds and with others. And so you get into a, a point where you kind of get a little bit lax, but there will always be players that are going to try and beat it. The money is just far too great. But I think that this adds to it. And especially if you get to, you know, a provision to where, you know, you go out and use stimulants, and you can potentially, you know, be banned from baseball for using stimulants as opposed to, you know, the quote unquote true hardcore performance enhancing drugs. I think that that's, that sends a very clear message. That has to come from the players as much as the owners. You know, I think that the owners of course have driven this train and, you know, ever since Congress stood basically behind Bud Selig and said, you guys are going to make a change or we're going to help you make that change. Um, And so I think that it is, once again, a good thing. Um, It it speaks to um, the change that we've seen in the game. And I think that, um, once again, this benefits, in many ways, um, the low to mid-revenue-making clubs. Um, The biggest change in baseball, I don't necessarily think had anything to do with money. I think that it has always been the fact that once you put the drug program in place, it provided this ability for players not to extend their lives right their playing careers um that when you do that that of course translates to dollars if you're going to sign veteran free agents and get more on the back end for them because they're using peds then that hurts players that are being developed and they wind up i always wonder how many great players wound up staying in the minors that we didn't get to see during the steroid era so that, that has driven the draft system and why we place so much more emphasis now in the draft system than we did before. And good teams now become selective around free agency. They don't try and fill their entire rosters with free agents. So I think that the drug program and in strengthening it will continue that model, and I think that that makes it um, much better for uh, um, clubs to be able to compete. You throw all these things together, and it should, in theory – Really benefit the um, the mid to small market clubs more than it benefits um, the large revenue makers.
2: A couple of things before I wrap up here. So from an on the field perspective, uh, got to g- give a, a, a nice round of applause. The All Star Game situation has been cleaned up. Won't mean anything. You know, baseball took them a hundred years. They finally got the best record scenario for the World Series uh, correct. And I think the ten day DL is a good thing. Were you a little? You know, talked about a little bit about that, but also were you disappointed? that they didn't address the 40-man roster expansion and that they did not add the 26-man. What were your thoughts on some of those uh, situations?
4: Well, from what we're seeing right away, just because we've reached a deal and that allows us to basically move forward doesn't mean that we're locked in. Um, a good example of this is we've seen the drug policy opened up as part of the CBA a number of times and changes have been made in terms of strengthening the suspensions. And certainly there are always changes that are going on Um, behind the scenes that we don't see around how testing is done. Um, Tony Clark immediately came out just days after the agreements made and said, look, we just because we didn't get that in doesn't mean that we can't readdress it. So I think that you're going to see um, a 26-man roster potentially in between now and 2021. And I think that you'll get to a 28-man expansion um, as opposed to the 40-man expansion that we see at the end of the season. Um, And I think that this plays into a number of other things too. You know, I think that you – could potentially see pace of play changes happen midstream because all of the pace of play changes that you've seen um, come into play now, uh, the clock for commercials and whatnot and players or pitchers basically having to basically be toeing the rubber when they come out of that clock um, is going to happen in between now and then. So um, I, yes, it was kind of like, I was surprised that it didn't happen, but I think that it's going to happen shortly. And I, I, from everything that we're hearing, while it might not happen for 2017 and maybe even 2018, I would expect to see something by, say, 2019.
2: Hey, Maury, I got to tell you, and you talk about this all the time, especially on Twitter, for all the pace of play, and, and I know some of those September games are ugly. Um, you know, we're watching the Mets here at the end of the year against the Phillies, and it, it's it's like pitcher after pitcher. But if your team's in the pennant race, you enjoy it. Uh, you know, the NFL has had some issues with ratings this, this past year. I got to tell you, the pace of play watching an NFL game isn't great. I mean, the NBA is pretty quick, uh, but sometimes the quality of the product isn't always there. Um, the NHL, we all know that with, with, with how it translates on television. Um, you know, baseball gets knocked, but, you know, if you're into it, you're a baseball fan, and I know being at the ballpark's a totally different situation. But even at home, I mean, you know, you could always switch it off and switch it back on. Uh, that's not what they want. Um, but this is still a pretty good product, and, and I think from a quality standpoint, it's right up there with all the other sports, if not better.
4: Well, yeah, and I would agree. I think that um, so you mentioned some of the other other games. I mean, the NFL. If the NFL is looking at pace of play and concerned about ratings, um, that, that will tell you something. I do begin to think. Um, I, I don't know how much of a difference shaving four minutes off here or there makes. I think that it really lends. The problem is really at the end of games, and this is really from like the sixth inning on. Basically, when you get through your your starter and you start to get into relievers and you're starting to use them and 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 pretty radical. When I say radical, I'm saying you know use a use a guy for basically um lefty lefty matchup, righty righty, and you use him for one one guy, and you basically move on. But the managers aren't hired to basically concern themselves with pace of play; they're hired to win games. um It's interesting that we've seen um we saw games in the postseason absolutely drag on forever, and we didn't seem to care about that because really the bottom line, Mike, is always um, if it's compelling, a four-hour game. In April or May is an absolute death knell. It, it's it's just very difficult to watch, and I, I it, it bugs me. A four-hour game and you know between the Dodgers and the Mets in the postseason is entirely different. And so you know I think that they will continue to have to do something about it. Um, I I don't know how they're going to address it. The players are certainly not going to sit there and go, you know, you're going to have to use less relievers because if I was to look at a a growth area in terms of contract dollars, relievers are, are the, where you're starting to see a whole lot of it. So it's just going to be very hard to say, oh, you can't use your relievers in these situations. And that was the concern, of course, going to 26, going to the 26 man roster right, that you can guarantee that maybe you're going to get into more pinch running or maybe something like that, but you'd be remiss to th- say that a manager isn't going to go to a bullpen to go get that other guy and stretch out, you know, depending on how well, on their starting rotation is and what their situations are in. So um, Manfred is in a difficult situation because you're trying to keep um, fans engaged. I don't know. You're never going to get because of the advent of television and commercials and whatnot, you're just never going to get to crisp two hour, two hour and 15 minute games, everybody playing games like that for an entire season. It's just not going to happen. So um, Manfred's going to have to try and figure out how to have his cake and eat it too, which is, How do we continue to let the game be the game that it is? And he's been very – when I've talked to him, he has always been very adamant about this, that the game is the game and that you cannot really make too many changes to it before you upend it. And so I I don't know how they do that. I will only say this. For those that are, of course, purists, they're probably all going to jump up and freak out. But if you've never been to a game with a pitch clock, I hope that everybody gets that opportunity because it becomes almost transparent. It took me about – three innings before I quit looking at it and I started to watch the game and it did not impact how I viewed the game at all. It seemed very natural. It seemed very fluid. I didn't see anything. I wasn't sitting there and watching the clock. So I don't know whether we get to see that. That seems to be a pretty radical thing, but I, I, I would be very surprised that we don't see a pitch clock and certainly within, you know, if not during this labor agreement, I would, I would expect to see it in the next one.
2: And the last thing, you remember the BBWAA. You got some interesting candidates that you'll be uh, looking at for the Hall of Fame coming up in January. But there's also the Veterans Committee, and uh, I got to tell you, more, you know now they're starting to bleed these players into errors that I watch, so they mean a little bit more. But I, I see names like Albert Bell and Harold Baines, Will Clark, you know, uh, you know, McGuire is even up on this Vets Committee. You know, managers like Lou Pinella, and you know, of course, you got Selig and Steinbrenner to name just a few. There's there's more. Almost all these names, you can make an argument for the Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, when you go to vote on a ballot for the uh, the Hall of Fame, there's so many great names. I mean, it's it, it's getting to the point where you you have to try to. There's precedent. You might have to start to figure out. Um, you know, where do you draw the line? It's it's not easy. I got to say, you know, whether you're a Veterans Committee or a BBWA member.
4: Yeah, I mean, I look at it. Um, I, first of all, I would say this: um, as time moves forward. Um, two things happen in life, right? We, we can look at this um, with our presidents, right? Um, as time goes on, we tend to soften our view of things that we may have been very adamantly opposed to in one way, shape, or form. And those things, that that view, that lens starts to soften up a little bit. Um, the other thing is, is that you're starting to see more and more younger members. You're starting to see more people like myself become a BBWA member. And I think that the individuals of, um, I the younger, more internet writer guys, I think, are more forgiving around certain aspects around the stereotype. We cannot avoid it forever. It just starts to be very odd. I, I had this conversation um, with Barry Bloom from MLB.com who's been a Hall of Fame voter for a long time and has been around the league and certainly the executives and whatnot. And he votes, he, he votes for Bonds and Clemens and whatnot. I think it's, you're going to just start to see more of the, the that loosening up. And the, the reason for it is pretty simple. The Hall of Fame is not – you know, it's called the Hall of Fame, right? It's in a museum for the fans, and it really is supposed to tell the story of baseball. And I don't know how you reconcile some of this stuff. How do I reconcile not having Barry Bonds in? How do I reconcile not having Roger Clemens in when those records are there, albeit they were most likely um, – PED infused. And uh, my view on it is really pretty straightforward. I had to get very black and white when the time arrives for me to vote for these kind of things. If you've been suspended, if you got caught as part of the drug program, you guys are off my list. If you were a guy that it looked pretty obvious that you did it, but you never came up positive. Well, I'm going to give you a slide because it just gets into a slippery slope. Um, I give c a complete pass on this thing. Um, I know that a lot of fans will sit there and say that Seelig had to have known, and he turned a blind eye on all this stuff. But with the exception of one writer for the Associated Press who had the foresight to look into Mark McGuire's locker and go, what is that vial of stuff in there? Everybody in the media missed it. So I can't really fault Seelig on that. So it just gets into a very difficult period of time. And if we're going to go there, I, I just have to get very black and white about it. I don't know what you, you know. I think that I don't think McGuire gets in. Um, I do think Selig will get in. Um, I And I think that we're going to continue to have to grapple with this, and I think that it will continue to change in the ball.
2: Maury, what do you have coming up uh, uh, at Forbes? And obviously, some CBA talk, but anything else you want to let the listener know about things you're working on and places they could find you?
4: Well, uh, so you can always find me on Forbes Sports Money, and like you said, you can find me on Twitter at Bizball Um The one thing I'm going to be writing about here pretty quick is, um, as more and more people move away from um, the traditional television and start becoming cord cutters and start watching large amounts of live sporting content um, streamed, I don't think you're going to get away from the, the technical difficulties of it, and I think that you're going to see potentially more of them as the whole infrastructure that supports live streaming is maybe not as robust and cannot handle maybe the amount of traffic. Right now, there's no way in this world that if you took everybody's television away and said, let's go make it digital, could could it be supported? So I'll be writing about that. And then I'm going to write about exactly what we were talking about earlier, about how I think that you're going to see something fairly radical in 2021 toward the end. When we get to this labor agreement being expired in December 2021, there's something that, it was sounds completely counterintuitive to what has gone on for the life of the players association that might have to be considered. And I think that that's going to be a, a really interesting conversation on social media about it.
2: Cool. Well, listen, I always appreciate catching up with you. Thank you for doing this
4: on a weekend. Uh, be
2: well, uh, I'll be reading and uh, let's, uh, let's talk again. Alrighty.
4: All right, Mike. Hey man, it's really a pleasure. And you have yourself a great weekend.
2: You too, Maury. Take care. Talk to you soon.
4: All right. Thanks a lot.
2: That's Maury Brown, the Biz of Baseball. Um, you can check him out at Forbes, at Bizball Murray uh, on Twitter. And uh, always a good uh, a good uh, read, always a good guy to catch up with. It's been a long time since I had a, a chance to catch up with them. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. When I return, let's get to Mets baseball. Uh, Tim Donner of Mets Marized Online is going to join me. We're going to preview the winter meetings we're going to talk about. What uh, we're hearing out there uh, with the Mets now that Ioannis Cespedes has been signed, what, some names, whether it be trade candidates, teams that are coming out with potentially interest in Bruce and Granderson, maybe for It's It's a little hard to see. We know what the Mets' needs are, but it's hard to hone in on who exactly they're looking at. So we'll get to that, and uh, we'll continue as we preview the uh, 2016 winter meetings. That are uh, going to be happening in National Harbor, Maryland. So on the East Coast, so we don't have to wait for uh, any of those three-hour time differences. You're listening to the Talking Mets Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Silva. We'll be right back.
3: And that ball is absolutely forced to last. Three-run shot, And the Mets have blown it open.
4: You know, after a year and a half
3: as opposed to a couple of months, I think it was easier for us to express our uh interest publicly in keeping UNIS and I think it was easier for him to express his loyalty to the Mets and I think that went a long way toward accelerating the process and getting it uh completed. Um, at a time that made sense
4: for UNIS and and certainly made sense for us as well.
2: We're back, Talking Mets podcast, and uh, as discussed earlier, joining me will be uh, Tim Donner. Tim is over at com, nationally uh, syndicated radio host, and we're going to go back and forth here and uh, chat a little bit about what we expect over the next, uh, I guess, three or four days as the winter meetings will be starting in just a few hours in uh, National Harbor, Maryland, and it's uh, it's some of the more... Tim, I would say that some of the more fun days of the baseball calendar, even though it's in, uh, at times, the cold dead of winter. How you doing, Tim?
3: I'm just doing great, I'll tell you, particularly since the signing of Yo! again. And, you know, uh, Mike, I was thinking about this as the winter meetings prepare to take place a mere few miles from where I'm located behind enemy lines near Nationals Park in northern Virginia. I was thinking about the... Uh, you know the joy at getting Cespedes back because he's obviously the centerpiece of that offense. He defines that offense. But how many times? It's a rhetorical question. How many times have you seen a team celebrating the acquisition of the same player three times? I mean, we brought Cespedes here in July of at the end of July of fifteen, and we celebrated. Then we signed him to the three-year deal with the buy out last winter in January and we celebrated cespedes again. And here we are, a mere what? Ten months later, and we're celebrating the signing of cespedes the acquisition of cespedes for a third time. So it's an extraordinary uh thing that's happened and it does take certainly some of the drama out of the winter meetings. But I think it's the kind of drama Met fans like myself and I suspect you, Mike, are are delighted uh to deal with. Uh, and now we can focus on moving some pieces around the chessboard, which we'll be discussing, I'm sure.
2: Right. And I mean, the, the Mets window is now and it was an odd courtship. Let's let's face it. The the deadline deal happened. That was a little unexpected because, again, nobody thought that Cespedes was the Mets type of player. Then he goes on to have what we all know is that great two month stretch. Mets get to the World Series But ever since that World Series ended, and and the only thing that gave you a glimmer of hope was that he waived the whole uh, five-day period where the Mets couldn't negotiate with him anymore. Right. It never looked like they were interested. They were trying to find a reason to move away from Cespedes. They tried to find a reason last year, uh, and the Zobras situation broke down. They brought Cespedes back. Um, He had another really big year, and I think they saw, because of the... And I don't know if this is because of the, the injury to the quad and how long he was out and how immediately things changed upon his return. Maybe they finally said we've got to commit. I mean, this was an this was the most dysfunctional dating leading to a marriage, if that's the way you want to call it, that you're ever gonna have. But you know, from day one, they weren't sure about this guy, and they finally committed. And the commitment looked him. the contract, four years, 110 million and by today's standards. It's not it's just a, fine. A, a crippling it's, fine. It's, it's not crippling Yeah, I mean he's 31. He seems healthy.
3: Um, and they didn't have to give him. Time. They did not have to give they didn't have to give him a 50 year and I think that was, you know, pretty important because you don't really look, let's be honest. We don't know how old he really is as is often the case sure. with guys coming from Cuba uh and Central America, but I think the thing about Cespedes that endears him so much to med fans is how <laughs> badly he wants to play with the Mets, and we haven't had that many guys like that over the years, have we? A guy who is intent on staying in New York, even though he probably could have squeezed at least as good a deal, if not better, out of someone else. Uh, but here he is back again, and, and uh, I think people are now feeling pretty comfortable with where this offense is headed because having him in that cleanup spot or the three spot, whatever they, wherever they want to bat him changes everything.
2: Yeah. And I think the couple of moments where you really had to start to see how important this guy is, if you didn't know it, because I was in the camp too where I wasn't sure about giving him a, a long term deal after last year. And you always have that desire to say, Hey, you know, maybe you build a team on pitching and contact hitting and, it's like the old copycat thing. The Royals win on contact hitting, and everybody wants to have contact hitters right. like Ben Zobris. Um, right. you know, now that relief pitching will be in vogue. But here's the thing there was the at bat against the Cardinals in a game they lost at City Field where he, he willed almost like you felt he was going to hit that home run. I believe it was off of Adam Wainwright in that game. Yes. Mets wound well the blow in that game. But I remember that at bat vividly about, about how intent it seemed Cespedes was trying to get them into that. Uh, to get them even or ahead. I can't remember now whether what had happened, but they'd blown so many opportunities in that game, and he wasn't going to let them blow another. And then there was the home run against the Marlins. And I said, I think I tweeted after that, I think, this is the kind of dynamic player that you, you saw with Strawberry. You saw with, with Piazza. He's probably more Strawberry than Piazza because you could criticize a lot about Strawberry's game in his prime. You could criticize a bit about Cespedes' game, but at the end... These guys are the hub of the team. They change the dynamic. And now you have that, and now his return to him creates some other questions because you needed right-handed power. You'd love to have it at third base. You're not going to get it at third base. You have him in left field. You have to keep him in left field because I really believe the quad injuries are due to him playing center. If you're going to commit to Michael Conforto and right, I cannot see a scenario where you could bring back – And they're not going to. It seems like either Bruce or Granderson are going to get traded. However, I think bringing both back is clumsy, including Granderson, because I don't think Granderson can play center field over a full season. And uh, he's not a backup. So you almost have to say to yourself, uh, this winter meetings is about how much are they going to commit to Michael Conforto? Because if you're going to bring Michael Conforto back and not hand him that, that starting job in right, um, are you going to get another type of up-and-down year and, and a more stunted development? You know Why Why wouldn't you go out and try to trade both of these pieces and see what you can get for them?
3: Well, look, with Conforto, I think the, the, the operative phrase should be trust but verify. I mean I think they trust him to give him that job every day with a possible hedge of uh, a right-handed platoon part or all of the time. Uh, but they cannot rely on the certainty that he's going to work out in right field. Look, I don't think there's any problem with him playing right field per se. I think he will probably play it about as well as he did left field, which is adequate enough. Uh, then you talk, you turn to center field, and you know another big question mark is Juan Lagares. He's a guy we know he rakes against lefties. Can he play every day? Can he hit enough against righties? Which, by the way, he has done pretty well at the end, at the tail end of the last couple of seasons and in the postseason in 2015. So then you you try to move. But Cespedes is sticking in left. I, I feel certain of that. They're not going to fool around with putting him in center, especially when they've got another gold-glover in center, Lagaris, who if you pair him with Cespedes, you've got two gold-glove outfielders, which means... You can afford a guy like Conforto and Wright, who'll still be learning the position. But then there's Granderson and Bruce. Now, I would argue that it's more than I, and I'm not going to say likely, but I think it's more than possible that they trade both of them because Granderson is due fifteen million bucks this year, and he is he worth fifteen million to this team? Well, not if there's another team that will take him, pay the full fifteen, and send you back. You know, a couple of decent prospects, maybe a relief pitcher in return. And then Jay Bruce really doesn't fit in at all because he blocks Conforto. He won't come back for another year, and he has value in a trade. Uh, so you take the two of them together, talking money here, and this is what people aren't really talking about that much with regard to Granderson, is the money involved, $15 million for him, $13 million due to Jay Bruce. You take those two out of the equation – you save $28 million bucks, and, of course, we all know the Wilpons. These things matter to them. And if you, if you did get rid of Granderson and Bruce, then you say, well, what are you going to do for your fourth and fifth outfielder? Well, it would mean that Brandon Nimmo would get a lot more time, probably as perhaps a fourth, certainly a fifth outfielder. Now, I, for one, would be happy about that. Because I like Nimmo more than most people, or at least to the point where I'm intrigued by what he can bring as a three to four hundred at bat outfielder. I think he brings energy, he brings speed, he's got a decent glove, he can hit for some power, some average. He's a, I guess at this point you'd call him a gap hitter, but don't be surprised if both Granderson and Bruce are traded and then you 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 move Nimmo up a peg and maybe you pick up uh Diazza or uh Justin Ruggiano as your fifth outfielder, depending on if you want a righty or a lefty bat as your fifth outfielder. I would suggest perhaps the lefty bat because in the infield you've got Flores and you've got right and you got Reyes, uh two of whom will be coming off the bench in any particular game, which gives you the right-handed hitters you need. So sure. I think we're going to see action on certainly, certainly Jay Bruce, but it would not surprise me to see them deal both of them.
2: And there, this, there's a certain amount of risk, so, risk. so you've you got Cess, but you would In a situation where you trade both of them, you've got Ligaris in center, who some, and myself included, think he profiles more as a fourth outfielder, uh, even though he uh, he makes starter money. Um, and then you got Conforto, and there's really no insurance at that point for Conforto. If he's a flop, if Conforto is the strikeout-prone, lost in the fog player you saw after April, uh, now you got some problems. But you know that's where you have to trust your scouts, you have to trust your player development. I find it hard to believe that uh, what you saw to Conforto is that player. Um, and then the other part of that, Tim, and this is where it's hard for me to wrap my head around that you got two guys, both Bruce and Granderson, whether it's Toronto who you've heard is interested. Um, Baltimore interested in Granderson. The Red Sox may be interested in, in, in Bruce or Granderson. You know These guys are going to go to an American League park and do well. For all their flaws, their streakiness, the strikeouts, how they could look goddarn awful, and, and sometimes uh, you know, obviously a tough lefty is going to make them look foolish, they're valuable. And to trade that for a reliever, although they need bullpen help, hard for me to swallow uh, and I also look at the team, and I say to myself, well, where else – you know, what else would you do? You're certainly not going to trade them for another outfielder unless you could get back a center fielder that could hit and bring some of the defensive elements that Lagares has, mm-hmm. which, by the well, way, if you trade both of them, why not go for Dexter Fowler, which basically Sandy Alderson has said that he won't do. So it, it, the, the thing that I'm trying to wrap my head around is what could you get for these guys because they're older, they're flawed, but they're valuable. And a bullpen arm, maybe an up-and-coming bullpen arm, is nice. But I don't see a one-for-one where you get a young, hard-throwing bullpen arm for Jay Bruce or Granderson. It's got to be more than that, I, I would
3: think. Well, okay. I think uh, now. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that I believe they should trade Granderson. I'm saying that I believe they may well because they're going to look at. I think they should. They're going to look at the dollars, dollars and they're going to. to gonna... Conforto.
2: I don't. I think you got to either commit to Conforto or not because it shows. Well, that I think they. I on think
3: that. Well, I think they are, but Granderson gives them a hedge in center field too. You know, he could he could play 80 to 100 games in center field uh if he had to. Uh here's a guy who in 2015 was a dynamic uh, offensive force and who last year when it really counted down the stretch in September had his best at-bats of the season. He's a guy he's a, he's a he's a major asset in the clubhouse. I'm not talking him down at all. I'd love to have Granderson back, but what I'm saying is I think they're gonna look at the bottom line and say is this guy worth fifteen million dollars to us if we can if someone else will pay that and will give us a couple of players in in return. He seems to obviously have more value, does Granderson now than he did in any of his previous two off seasons with the Mets, so it's also a good he, it might be the height of the market for what they could possibly get for Granderson and look they can figure out the outfield situation again by getting a, a Alejandro Daza or a Justin Ruggiano type of guy as a hedge against uh, Michael Conforto but they have to you know they have to give Conforto a chance there's every indication they're going to do exactly that that it's going to be in right field that they believe that the player he was two years ago is a lot closer to the player he is than the one we saw last year where he just got lost on the backside of the desert and never really uh, recovered. But it's a new year coming. I mean, how else are you going to find out, honestly, Mike, whether this guy is what we think he is unless you put him out there and give him at least 400 advances here?
2: Now, here's the other part. And if you had first two things, and I think we'll agree on the first one, If you choose between Bruce and Granderson, I think you go with Granderson because he's done it here in New York. You mentioned his September. Uh, September was about 300 batting average. uh, uh, Let me bring it up right here. 302 batting average, OPS over 1,000, slugging over 600, eight home runs, 21 RBIs. Had those those big home runs against the Minnesota Twins in that Saturday night game. So you pick Granderson. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know. I don't think the Mets are going to get into or sneak themselves into Any high profile trade talks with a Chris Sale or even Andrew McCutcheon. Andrew McCutcheon would be an interesting thing to talk about because then, now, is the situation where you keep Granderson. You could maybe put Conforto as the offensive headline of a McCutcheon trade. I don't know if they would go for it, but it's certainly better than some of the low level. I mean, I know that they have some high, you know, high prospects at lower levels of of organizations in Washington and so on, and, you know, Atlanta and other teams that are out there. But, you know, Conforto a little bit more established than that. And then you have to decide, because in a trade like that, if you were to get in on a McCutcheon to play center field, you most certainly have to maybe put Steven Matz in there. Um, you know, I don't think they'd put Syndergaard, DeGrom, or any of those guys, but you have to talk about a Matz, maybe a Gazelman. Um,
3: yeah, you probably, you know, a, to probably a Gazelman. If you, if you I don't know how much, too- how much
2: value... Zellman has out there. Um,
3: I'm not sure either, and I don't think we really know because I don't. I think the Mets undervalued him. Come on. I mean, they had to be surprised at how well he pitched in sure. September. There was no indication that he was going to be as good as he was just like Lugo. I mean, neither one of them showed the signs of being of what they were when they got to the majors, which was close to being dominant starters for the last three or four weeks of the season. I mean, it, it was remarkable. But remember that the, the Nationals are are really quite intrigued with the possibility of getting uh, Andrew McCutcheon as well. So would you want to, to go all in to try to block the Nats from getting this guy? Is he really – look, he had a p- pretty bad year last year. Is McCutcheon the guy we saw for the three or four years before that, the, the guy who was the MVP, or is he the guy who suddenly at 30 last year uh, had a down season and is now suddenly past his prime and on the way down. I think most people think that the McCutcheon of the of the years before that is is more likely what we're going to see. But whether, you know, I think the Pirates the, the Pirates are looking for a package, but I'm not convinced that they will let McCutcheon go at any cost. Uh, but the Nationals have a lot to offer him in terms of prospects, but the Mets do too. I'm just not sure that they're willing to go all in when they kind of think that is given the chance to play more often is gold-glove uh, potential, well, certainly his gold-proven uh, bona fides as a as a, as a a gold-glove center field. I'm not sure that they would put that too high on the uh, priority list unless uh, the Pirates fail to deal him for a package of high-level prospects and maybe you know, maybe a, a middle of the rotation or potential top of the rotation starter who's still in the minors. Uh, it's all <laughs> speculation, of course, at this point, just like it is with Chris Sale, who knows, you know, what will, what will really happen uh, with that. But the, the, uh, I think the, the, the outfield is yet to be settled, but I think that all the possibilities are, are good. The, the one thing I think I would say i I'm, pretty 95 percent certain of is that they will trade jay bruce because we don't need another lucas duda in the lineup i mean jay bruce is essentially a clone of lucas duda and you don't need two big slow clunky one-dimensional players now i know people are going to argue oh Duda's high on base percentage he's good eye at the plate all the walks he gets i know all of that but let's face it he's a big clunky player and so is bruce they don't need two of those guys
2: no, I, I agree with you. Let me throw, let me throw out a name that would be kind of a uh, out of the box, and I'm not sure the Mets have the room on the 40 man, and they'd have to wait three four months potentially for him to make an impact. But Wilson Ramos is out there, and yep. I was reading. I know Sandy Alderson has said they're going to improve the catching from within, and you know Adam Rubin was was uh, talking about on Twitter how one of the reasons they brought in Glenn Sherlock. From the Arizona Diamondbacks to replace Tim Tuffle at third base because, uh, you know, right. he's a catcher could work with Darno as a catcher. Maybe that was the Bob Guerin factor that was missing this year. It you know, bothers me about the whole catching situation, and there's not a lot of options out there, and I have no problem with them bringing back Renee Rivera. Uh, you know, I don't know what cl- Kevin Powick is going to be, if he's ever going to be anything more than a backup, but he regressed, in my opinion, this year. Uh, he, he looked lost sometimes out in the field. The thing about Darno is this and maybe it's just a matter where the Mets know they they don't have anything better and they have to try to make this work. He's 27 years old, and we're talking about bringing in a coach to now help him behind the plate where they feel is what has hurt him offensively is the defensive struggles. And despite the fact he had a nice second half in 2015 and he certainly helped them against the Cubs, he still has never shown me that he's a a full-time catcher. As a matter of fact, he's a nice, solid backup to have. But that's not what they were trying to get when he traded R.A. Dickey.
3: I sort of feel like that Darno is halfway between a starter and a good reserve. He's he's a starter in the sense that he can be an impact bat. We've seen that potential. But he's a reserve, uh, well, shall we say a part-time starter in the sense that there's almost a certainty that he's going to get hurt, because he always does, that he's going to miss 30 to 50 games a year uh that another catcher is going to have to start which is why i see them getting i, I like getting Rene rivera back i really do because these the, the Mets staff like pitching to him there's no question about it i mean he is a catch and throw guy supreme with a little bit of power too and evidently a good clubhouse guy as well but i still think that with Darno and rivera that still leaves you a little bit short i would have liked to see them get a guy who could start a hundred games a year as a hedge against Darno, because you know, let's face it, we we don't know. It's not even that much less unclear uh, than than with Conforto. You really don't know what you're going to get from Darno this year. I mean, the guy could be the guy that raked the second half of '15, or he could be the guy who was basically a dead ender last year. Never got, uh, never got in the group. Uh, never. Uh, came close to being an impact bat. Ploiecki doesn't solve anything because there's no way the guy is better than Darno from what we've seen, Uh, doesn't have the defensive credentials of a guy like Rivera, so he becomes like a third part-time catcher. So I I think, though, by bringing Rivera back, they basically said they're not going to go after a guy like Wilson Ramos unless they're planning, which is certainly possible because Sandy Alderson likes to keep his cards close to the vest. Perhaps he includes uh, Darno in a in a in a trade. Let's say packages. Well, they of already the, tried. With the Jay they Bruce. tried
2: with Luke Croy. They tried with Luke Croy, which would have been. They a tried with
3: time. Luke Croy. They did. Although <laughs> I kind of thought that might have been a short term move for last year. Although they did, they they would have been able to control him beyond the end of of this last season. But I wonder if that ship has sailed now that Darno is quote, healthy, unquote, which for him appears to be only a, a temporary situation. He just doesn't seem to have the durability behind the plate. And then Rivera doesn't give you enough of a bat. So I'm I, I'm very tenuous about the catching situation, but I don't see, given that they brought Rivera back, and I don't think they brought him back to sit at AAA at Vegas, uh, I don't see them likely making a move, unless, of course, they flip. Darno, as part of a trade with say a bruce or a granderson to bring more back in return because i think there are teams that would like to have Darno as a project teams that are not ready to win yet that would like to have Darno as a project at his uh, cheap uh, cost uh, and that would free them up to sign a guy like ramos but that's a risk too because you just don't know how bad his injury really is is he come? Yeah. does he come back in may or is he going to be gone for most of the season and not useful till 2018? So we don't know that about Wilson Ramos either.
2: No, that's for sure. And the thing, just real quick on Darnell, I'm looking at his numbers. He, he had about eight more plate appearances uh, in 2016 versus 2015. Only two less hits. However, seven less doubles, eight less home runs, 26 less RBIs. His walks and strikeouts are almost the same. So – you know maybe it's a matter of a, a small tweak when you look at it that way when you look at it statistically you know his it's not it's it's the power it's the impact type of hitting that was missing now you watch him day in and day out the eyes tell you the guy was off the guy was absolutely off um i mean the only thing and I he was not and it was not defense.
3: effective he was not effective behind the plate i mean he, he no, his arm was still erratic he was not confident back there he, he's just never been—he's uh, never been a guy that can control the running game. And even though the running game isn't supposedly as important as it used to be, stolen bases are supposedly not something you're supposed to do as often as you did no, in the 20 becoming, or 30 it's years. It's becoming a bigger ago. deal.
2: It's becoming a bigger deal against start, starting to a little started. bit,
3: perhaps with the, with the Royals, the way the Royals played the game uh, that led them to a World Series title, kind of got people back on the running game a little bit. But still, you're seeing. You know, stolen base leaders these days are are picking up maybe 50, 55. When when we were growing up back in the day, the uh, stolen base leader usually would have between 75 and 100, right? Or 75, 85, 90.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But here's another thing. It's a huge indictment, in my opinion, that a guy that was a top 25 prospect in baseball lost his job to Rene Rivera. And this is not a knock on Rene Rivera. You, you yeah. said it best. He's a catch-and-throw yeah. guy. You, you, know, you can't lose your job. Look, if you want to survive in this game and you're at the level of Darno, you should not be in the muck with Rene Rivera. You shouldn't. And that's and that, to me, is that's the indictment. There, there's a gear, to my opinion, missing at that point where you allow yourself, unless he was physically unable to play, and and, and, and a rotator cuff, Could certainly impact Mm -hmm. your hitting. I understand that, and Mets are not talking about it. But if it's not, if he was relatively healthy, and is indeed, they're bringing a guy like Sherlock in to work with him. Huge indictment, huge red flag, and no wonder Milwaukee didn't say, you know what? Let me take the Mets deal with Darno in it versus what they wound up getting.
3: Yeah, Um, Darno is he he's just a he's just a project. I mean, let's face it, Darno remains a project and the attractive thing about him is that he doesn't cost much and he still at least theoretically has a lot of upside, which is why I think the Mets are going to stick with him for probably another year. But beyond that, I mean, if he doesn't recover to become something close to an impact offensive player given his Mm, shall we say, mediocre defense, uh, then he's not the answer long-term. I mean, he just isn't, and they'll have to go after uh, another catcher. But I see them giving him another chance because he is controllable, he's affordable, uh, and I think they're still intrigued enough by his upside, at least as an offensive player, to – have him figure into their plans this year. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, you got Rivera as the backup, then you may, you can make a move for a catcher at the trade deadline. I mean, I think that's probably their strategy at this point.
2: Would you feel comfortable if it came down to they, uh, their bullpen additions are the same guys that they ended the season with? They re-sign Fernando Salas. They find some kind of middle ground where they don't go bananas with Blevins Um, out there. Although, you know, one thing about Blevins, although historically he wasn't lights out against righties like he was much better this year against righties, when you compare him with Boone Logan or Michael Dunn or some of the other lefty names that are out there in the market, you know, those guys are strictly lefty specialists. Their numbers are so bad against righties that you don't want them in the game against righties. At least Blevins, if you have a lefty, righty, lefty part of the lineup, you could feel comfortable with that one right-handed bat that's sandwiched in between those two lefties that you can keep them in. When you have a situational lefty, a situational lefty, you got to hold your breath when they face the right-handed batters because then they pretty much perform like they're Barry Bonds. I would be okay with those two guys coming back. Um, I, I would too. I another. You know. Yep. No, I mean no, they're they're not sexy, but they're 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 efficient in my opinion. They're the good. I got, the I
3: like. Perfect. I mean, I like what I saw out of Salas, and the thing about Salas is he's a guy who has a potential to close on a limited basis if needed. He has a potential to be a setup guy if needed. He's pretty much ideal, solid, consistent as a as a seventh-inning guy, so he gives you some real versatility there. Uh, he gives you some options. You know, to me, Blevins is about the gold standard when it comes to a loogie or situational lefty because of the fact that he proved last year that he can get righties out as well. So, of course, by September... Terry Collins was using him for entire innings, uh, which was not the plan to begin with. I would like him back. I would like Salas back. Reed, I would like to keep in the setup role. Uh, I don't, I'm don't. i not that comfortable with the idea of him moving into the closers role when the inevitable suspension of uh, Jerry's familia uh, is announced. That could be anywhere from, let's face it, uh, maybe 30 games to about 80 games. But I think that's where we need to take the conversation here, Mike, is about Familia because you're dealing with two things now. You're dealing with a guy who has the stain of domestic violence on him and the the effect of a suspension that robs the Mets of their closer for anywhere from a month to half the season. Do you move Reed into that closer role while you do that and then just bring Familia back and stick him in it or do you, as I think they need to do, go after another bullpen arm that is capable of closing? Because when you combine Familia's legal situation with his absolute meltdown, I mean, in in the wildcard game, that that was something that that was avert your eyes stuff. I mean, that he just completely spit the bit. And I think we have to realistically now, when we look at Familia, as much as we all loved him and rooted for him and and, and met fans far I love this guy. Honestly, you now have to look at him and say we're looking at another Armando Benitez. Because when you combine what he did in the postseason, particularly the World Series in 2015, a lot of which wasn't his fault, all those blown saves but he didn't pitch well, and he certainly blew the first game by giving up the home run to Alex Gordon that tied the game in the ninth inning of the first game of the 2015 World Series. You combine that with, with his absolute meltdown in the wildcard game last year, and when you're talking about a team whose window is still wide open like the Mets, you got to have a guy who, when it turns to October, you're not going to need Xanax to watch him pitch. Which is why, you know, the, the, the lore of getting, and I don't have a particular name in mind. At this point, it's more a concept. Do you want to get a guy like a Melanson or even a Chapman uh, to serve as your real closer with the hope of moving Familia and everyone else back one notch? I mean, I think that's something that they need to consider and that they could if they were able to dump the salaries of, for example, Bruce and Granderson for next year. Now, do you agree with me, Mike, that, that we ought to get another closer uh, who yeah, can supplement?
2: For for a couple of reasons. I'm not as worried about the whole postseason thing. I think he was a little overused last year. Yeah, the Gordon home run, uh, the home run this year to the Giants, that's not what you see during the regular season. He was shaky throughout the year. I wonder if some of the lack of preparation we saw from some of the other pitchers that I complained about all year uh, bled into Familia, um, but I think let's let's put that aside because you could debate that. None of us know that until he gets back into the postseason. Heck, he may lose his job if Reed does well and he comes back. If he's suspended for fifty games, he might get the eighth inning. He might do what what he did to Mejia. He might have done to him.
3: Here's That's possible. About. That's possible. You can I go mean- out,
2: and I think here's here's where the Jay Bruce thing is going. Let's just talk about Bruce. Forget about Granderson. You're either gonna trade Jay Bruce for a decent reliever maybe hopefully in his mid 20s with some upside and a prospect and dump the salary that's probably the logical way they're going to go or if it's possible where they're desperate enough for the bat could you include a veteran reliever who's making some money I look at Toronto and a team that's uh, name has uh, te- the team that's shown interest in Bruce maybe get back a Jason Grilli and then you got to right. probably take maybe because you're taking salary back Maybe you got to get a better prospect of some sorts. Grilly's 39, but he's got closing experience. Or if you go to Baltimore with a Granderson or a Bruce, it seems like they're more interested in Granderson than Bruce, would they give up a Darren O'Day or something like that? Um, Well, again,
3: uh, somebody with with some closing experience, because you do have Reed who has closing experience. You have Salas who has some closing experience. If you had yet another guy who did, There's no reason to think that in the long run, I'm sure I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but there's no reason in the long run that you couldn't have more than one guy closing games. It doesn't have to be. There's no law that says that one guy has to close every game. And I think, you know, with the shortened duration of, of, uh, you know, of starters, Uh, these days the bullpen obviously becomes more important and you know if you've got three or four guys who can close on a given day that helps to hedge against over reliance on familia now once you get to the postseason of course you want a single closer but I I just think that uh, we could use a reliever who was more than just a a a piece a sixth or seventh inning piece Uh, and it would be worth spending money or players to get a guy who's at least approaches the Chapman and Melanson level.
2: I look at, um, you know, again, Chapman, Melanson level, uh, they're not going to go there. That would be a great, I mean, that's the way you go. You spend the money, it doesn't sound like you're going to go there. But, you know, I look at what you could realistically get, or maybe if you're not going to take on a veteran lever. Uh, you got a name here in uh, Toronto, a guy by the name of Joe Biag- Biagini, uh, failed starter in the minor leagues, uh, came up. You know he fits the profile more than about a strike you just up, turning like you, you, low you,
3: walks. You just like him because he's another Italian guy, Mike, or yeah, no? I I'm
2: a, I'm a mutt man. I'm only partial Italian, but there's a name. Like I'm trying to look. He fits the profile, but yeah, you know he would fit in Italian here in New York. Uh, you know, here's another guy, uh, and I'm gonna go to the Baltimore because I'm probably gonna say the guy's name wrong. I don't get a chance to to, to get into the depths of the American League as much as I like uh uh Brad. Um, and you probably down there, see Brad Brock. Uh, here's a guy, another mm-hmm. guy who was a starter at one point. Mm-hmm. I think in the minor leagues was with San Diego. I mean, these are guys in their late t- mid 20s. I mean, Brock is a little bit older. Uh, he was an All Star last year. Uh, you're not getting equal value for 30 home runs. See, to me. This challenging part with Bruce and Granderson, you're giving up 30 home runs. There is a value to that in today's game, and to get you're only giving but you're only, the giving, but you're only the,
3: giving them, but you're only giving them that for one year. You know they're only getting one year of Bruce or one year of Granderson, and you're getting them. Bruce is probably a bargain at, at 13 million in today's market. Granderson is not really at 15 million and they only come with the uh, one year. So I still think there's a real limit. Unless you wanted to think more, you know, larger thoughts and it, and talk about a bigger deal that might include a Darno, and then you go after another catcher. I mean, that's the kind of thing that they, they could consider. Uh, I don't know that, that they would go in that direction again, because I do think they're going to give Darneau, uh another chance. But you've got, look, you've got, you got Wilmer Flores, you, you've got lagaris you've got a, a number of guys here. you got Nemo Plus, you got Gazelman and Lugo. I mean, they're seven deep, seven deep with their starters. I mean, they could afford to trade in a larger deal. Uh, they could, you know, it would bring back more than just a, a garden variety veteran reliever.
4: True, uh, they have a lot of guys they careful. can still
3: flip.
2: You gotta be see the one thing I've always said. This was even goes back to when I was getting made fun of when I warned people a couple of years ago about just dumping Nice and dumping G before we had Syndergaard come up and Matts. You need depth and and I remember Rick Peterson told me I've said this a thousand times on the show. You gotta go into the season knowing that you have eight to ten starters and that is hard because numbers eight nine and ten are usually not that good. You don't want when you start getting to eight nine ten you're hoping it's a spot start or a very short stint. The Mets right now have a solid seven. Uh, Wheeler right now is kind of a half because they may even throw him yeah. in the bullpen. Maybe that solves some things. Because Zellman and Lugo provide you with the kind of depth. And Alderson said this on WR the other day to Pete McCarthy that I guess maybe they were surprised about. But you have to go out now. Bartolo Colon got $12.5 million. Ari Dickey got $8 million. You're going to have to pay. Let's not forget, their 40-man roster is jammed. Jam-packed. So in any kind of trade, that brings somebody back. I mean, that's one for one replacement. Any free agent, you got to find room there. There is a little bit of room, I'm sure, that you can look at guys like Ty Kelly and what have you. But you got to be right. So, um, to just why not? Trade- uh,
3: why not then? Why not straight up Jay Bruce for R. A. Dickey?
2: Well, I guess they could have just signed R. A. Dickey if they wanted that. That you know, but is I he a free agent? I thought he know, had
3: another year left.
2: Don't no, he was, year? he was signed by Atlanta. Yeah. So they. they oh, I'm him, sorry. But, I, that's yeah, right, I forgot. I don't think they want to help the Braves, who seems to be in a little bit more of a win-now mode than uh, Surprising, than isn't it? Here, here's another thing. You've got Robertson and Chicago. you got the White Sox and the Tigers looking to fire sale. So you got to comb those rosters a little bit, which probably precludes them from bringing a Jay Bruce in. But maybe they say, hey, you take on multiple years of my guy that you need, like a Robertson who has multiple years less, versus the one year left of Bruce, at least they get something. Maybe they could trade that guy and get some prospects midseason as well because of the new labor laws. And then you look and say, okay, is Todd Frazier an option? Because you talk about, uh, you know, not that he had a great, great year from an average standpoint. He was more of a Dave Kingman type year, but he's a local guy and what have you. And Ron Darling said this. It goes back. We were talking when we were prepping for the show there, Tim. um, You know, you don't know what you're going to get from Wright. I mean, Wright is a real bottleneck because if he's on the roster, even as a part time player, it doesn't seem to me that he's, his condition lends itself to him being a good part-time player. You know, Maybe you could platoon him against lefties. Um, it ter- turns uh, yeah, out that pro- C.J. Rivera is a better option, or Jose Reyes well, look, is a the, better the,
3: option. The problem is, I mean, Re- Wright really does present a problem now, because once they got Reyes last year, he made a huge difference out of that leadoff spot. Everybody can agree with that. He brought energy. He brought speed which they had zero of. They had less speed, arguably, than any other team in the majors, Till they brought Reyes in, and he made a huge difference. So now you bring Wright back, and what do you do with him? You take Reyes out of the lineup, you take out that speed, you take out that leadoff hitter in return for a David Wright who, let's face it, we have no idea what we're going to get from him. We don't even know that he'll make it to opening day, but if he does... There's a real conundrum here that, that I think is going to be talked about a lot between now and opening day, and that is what about Reyes versus Wright at third base? What do you do there? I mean, to be honest with you, right now I'm prone uh, to favor Reyes Wright, because I think his Wright removal from, his removal from the lineup would be a blow to the Mets. Reyes turned out to be a better third baseman than expected, uh, David is a guy. let's face it. How many games could he could he play a hundred i'm I'm not sure we know he could play fifty. I don't think we have any idea, and we haven't heard much about it but i i am uh I am hesitant to see Jose Reyes taken out of the lineup in favor of a guy who we all know what David means to the franchise but This is a guy with a condition that will only get worse for certain, unlike most injuries where you can say, well, he'll recover. He's not going to recover. He's going to get worse. So there's a real issue there about what they're going to do. They're not going to trade Reyes, and and they're certainly not going to trade Wright because no one will take him. So we're going to face that, and isn't that ironic? that Wright and Reyes would 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 create this issue, these two guys who came up right. together in the early 2000s who were the face of the franchise, and now here they will be competing directly against each other for starting third base.
2: Right. Yeah, well, For what it's worth, Adam Rubin again reiterated in a tweet that the Mets are going to make uh, Darno the primary catcher, so all this Wilson Ramos talk is uh, just that, but... Look, and, and Tim, we will wrap up on this. Um, you know, you've been watching baseball a long time. These are a fun four days, you know, whether it's when I was younger waking up um to Brett Saberhagen being acquired cuz back then newspapers you weren't you weren't going to get the blow by blow. Um, sure. you know, there was some fun times since I've been doing this independent media stuff with the Cliff Lee saga or when the Mets uh, got Krod and and JJ Putz and you know obviously, the whole uh, uh, Ben Zobras thing last year uh, and what have you. But um do you have a winter meetings memory?, uh, something that when you when you get into the meetings and you have this four or five days, is there something that always comes back to you, a memory of, you know, maybe, um, a fun thing or a fun story or or something that happened that uh, that comes to you mind. You know,
3: it's not, there's not a single memory uh, of it. The the more memorable moments uh, in the off season, which you know is the entire sweep from November through to 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 March or April, uh, was some of the later signings they made, like Cespedes. I remember when they were going after and finally landed Mo Vaughn. <laughs> Back in 2000, sure. I want to say two, it might have been three, and there was this big thing about could they get Mo Vaughn, they were going to trade Kevin Apier for him, and go, oh, there was suspense about it for like six weeks, and they finally got him, and he turned out to be, of course, a complete bust, and he fell apart physically, never did anything near what we'd hoped. But I remember most recent memory was the signing of Granderson uh, three winters ago, not because... Granderson was going to turn the franchise around but because it showed a a, commit, a, a return to a commitment to spend some money after the after the um, you know the years of financial hardship uh that shall we say that the, that the Mets faced uh because of the whole made up uh, situation but I remember thinking okay well at least they're now back in the saddle they got this guy, yeah, they had to get him for four years when it should have been for three, but that was sort of a turning point, and I remember thinking, okay, I think we're at least, we've, we've turned, we, we've we bent the curve from downward to upward for where this franchise is headed, and I remember feeling not overjoyed, but satisfied that maybe the long, dark spell that we went through from, you know, 2000, really, nine. Uh, up through uh, the signing of Granderson, that things were starting to turn around.
2: Well, the best part is it's on the East Coast, so guys like me, I'm 39. Uh, Tim, I don't know if I could do those 2 a.m. Uh, marathons anymore. They're killer, you know. So at least they maybe really you'll are. get some news at a reasonable hour instead of the Las Vegas ones or the California ones or, or things like that. Well, we'll, we'll be watching, Tim. It's been, you know time flies when you're having fun. We got to do this again. Um, you know, Anytime. one last thing to leave it, we'll leave you with, leave the listeners with. So if you look, you know, again, I'm going out of Ruben's Twitter feed. Uh, Adam Rubin of ESPN. It looks like they'd rather trade Jay Bruce than Granderson. Granderson's getting more interest. The Mets don't feel compelled to do much anything else but that, and they're willing to take prospects, but they'd like to get a reliever back. So very well, the kind of unsexy, or deal that lacks any kind of uh, pop. Is probably what we're looking at. And, and maybe that's a good thing, Tim, because they signed Cespedus. I don't know. We'll see. But that seems to be what we're going to be faced over the next four days, which would make for a rather uneventful winter meetings. But I guess this is about getting business done.
3: Well, and also we have to keep an eye on what the Nationals do because they've got their sights set on a Chris or and Andrew McCutcheon, McCutcheon. because. I think next year, I think we're going to see, unlike the last two years when the Mets dominated the division one year and the Nationals did the next, I think we're looking at one heck of a divisional race next year. I, I expect it to be much tighter, and the Nationals recovered very well last year from the disaster of 2015 still with the stigma of being unable to win in the postseason. But I think we need to keep an eye on what the Nationals uh, are doing because their winter is really just beginning, whereas the Mets is probably 60 to 70% over following the most important winter transaction of all the signing of Cespedes.
2: Tim, it's been great going back and forth. Let's do it again uh, as the offseason runs. And if I don't talk to you, have a great uh, holiday. And uh, good New Year, but I'm sure we'll talk before then. All righty.
3: You as well. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy Holidays. Always a pleasure, Mike. And uh, I will anxiously look forward to our time together again.
2: Take care, Tim. That's uh, Tim Donner, nationally syndicated radio host. Uh, also on com. Great stuff. Hey, um, want to wrap up here. Want to thank Maury Brown. Uh, check out uh, Mori at, at BizballMurray. Great stuff on the CBA. Want to thank Tim Donner, of course, over at MetsMorrisOnline dot com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. You can check out the show all the time over at MetsMorrisOnline dot com, on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Sit back for the winter meetings, and we'll be back soon.